Well, good morning, Grace family. As we once again gather in our respective places in the bond of Christ, a unifying reality like no other, we are ever so mindful of how disunity and conflict seems to be the order of the day in our country, and maybe especially these days. Two days from now, our citizens will be counted as to their vote in these upcoming elections. And no matter what the outcome, there will be tremendous lament and outcry from half our country. And who knows what manner of reaction we will witness. All this to say, our country needs prayer. It always has, of course. But today, as we are on the brink of a monumental decision, it behooves us to go to the Lord in prayer. Praying for peace, for order, but also that there might be men and women who are elected to office, who are men and women of character, who seek truth and justice, and who lead with integrity. Men and women who, above all, seek after the heart of God. And whether the election results evoke great joy or perhaps grief in us, may we remember that our God is in control and has divine purpose in any outcome. So may we rest in that truth and trust Him for our future. So let's lift up our country in prayer right now together. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice today that we are citizens of Your kingdom. And may that make us all the more committed to being faithful citizens on earth. You have said in Your Word once before, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so in that spirit, we pray to you. We look to you for help. Lord, forgive us our sins as individuals and as a collective people. And may we turn from our ways that are not congruent with your ways and your heart. May we trust you more than we trust man. And may our trust in you result in a supernatural peace that overwhelms anything else that would threaten to instill fear or anxiety in us. And may we be agents of peace to all those we encounter. Unite us, Lord. Strengthen us. And may we, as your church, be a light in this world, in our cities, in our workplaces, in our homes. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest rain, but wholly lean on on Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand When darkness hides His lovely face I rest on His unchanging grace In every high and stormy my anger holds within the veil On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand 
All of the ground is sinking sand His oath, his covenant, his blood Support me in the whelming flood When all around my soul gives way He then is all my hope and stay On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand So today we'll be looking at this beautiful passage about reconciliation in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So join me in reading this passage. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we continue in Ephesians 2, and for the last two weeks, uh, we've looked at verse 1 through 10, which is one of the most central passages on our vertical reconciliation with God, just this beautiful passage. And today we look at the second half of 
chapter 2, which is one of the most central passages in all of Scripture on our horizontal reconciliation with one another, the unity in Christ that comes through the cross. And it's so important to hold those two things together, uh, particularly in this moment in time, and even just as, as Western American Christians, I think we're always in danger of having a gospel that is very individualistic, that's just a, a me and God kind of gospel. And we forget that that the gospel is not just that God is saving individuals and preparing them for heaven, but that he is He's at work in the world to form a community, a, a family who together learn to live out the life of Christ by his spirit. And so we're going to look at this great, wonderful passage uh, this morning, this beautiful picture of the unity that Jesus brings. And I think it's important to set this passage in its context. First, I want to just set it in the context of this current moment that we're in. Uh, and there's a phrase that Paul uses in verse 14. He refers to the dividing wall of hostility. And I think that image actually perfectly sums up what we're experiencing in our nation right now, the dividing wall of hostility. There's so much division right now. There's division along political lines, along racial lines. We could think of even economic lines, so many different cultural lines where there's so much division and there is a dividing wall of hostility. There's a lot of anger there's a lot of prejudice. There's a lot of mistrust and suspicion and fear. And the election coming up in two days probably isn't going to solve any of those problems. So we're in this moment where we're experiencing this great division and hostility in our nation. But I also want to set this passage in the original context in the first century. And as we do that, we'll learn that that kind of hostility that we're experiencing in our nation now is really, there's nothing new about it. That that kind of dividing wall of hostility has existed between people for, for so many thousands of years. And in Paul's context, the, the dividing wall of hostility that he's referring to is between these two uh, ancient enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles. These two people groups uh, there, where there was a lot of hostility and division between them. And in the first century, um, there was a lot dividing Jew from Gentile. There was a religious division. Right? The Jews uh, were the people that God had chose. They believed in the one true God, Yahweh, and Gentiles were these pagans who had pagan gods or no God at all. So there was a religious division between them. Uh, there was a racial and ethnic division between them. Right, the, the Jews were the bloodline of Abraham, Abraham and his descendants. They could trace their lineage back to Abraham. The Gentiles were basically everybody else in the world. And then there was also these deep cultural and lifestyle uh, divisions between them. And for the Jews, they'd been given the Mosaic Law and all that that implied for their way of life. Jews were circumcised if they were men. They uh, observed kosher food laws. They ate certain things. They observed certain days like the Sabbath and other festivals. They had these washing ceremonies. So their lives looked very different than Gentiles in some very practical ways. And so there was a great animosity between these two groups, great suspicion, great mistrust, great prejudice. Uh, to make, just kind of put it simply, if you were a first century Jew, you would never have sat at a table and had a meal with a Gentile in your entire life. If you were a first century Jew, you would never have walked into the home of a Gentile in your entire life. 
Okay, so you imagine some of the prejudice and, and dynamics that have existed in, the, in our own nation's history, and we can think of lots. Uh, the first century dynamic between Jew and Gentile was as dark and as challenging as anything that we know in our nation today. So that is the context, this dividing wall of hostility between people groups. And I want you to notice the flow of this passage. It's beautiful. It begins uh, addressing the Gentiles. And the flow moves from these Gentiles being outsiders and excluded to them ultimately being insiders and included. So it goes in verse 11 and 12. Look at this language in verse 12. He's talking to the Gentiles. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Okay, separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope and without God. You are outsiders. You are totally on the outside. And then the passage moves ultimately to verse 19, where Paul says this, but now you are no longer foreigners and strangers. All that exclusion is gone. You are now insiders. And he gives us these great images of the Gentiles being included. You are fellow citizens with God's people. You're part of God's nation, we might say. And also members of his household, not only his nation, but you are now part of the family. And then in verse 22, he talks about them being part of this temple. You, you are part of this temple of unity that God is dwelling in, in his spirit. All that to say there's this flow from exclusion and hostility towards reconciliation and unity and oneness in Christ. And the question is, what happened to bring this about? What happens between verse 12 and verse 19 to bring these ancient enemies together? And the answer is, in a word, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus happened. Jesus came and did something so radical that changed everything, that brought these ancient enemies together into one family of God. And so what I want to do this morning is consider what Jesus has done. I want us to consider Jesus. I want to consider his passion for unity. I want to consider his sacrifice for unity, his, his intention and his purpose that we would be one. And as we do this, I want us to ask the question, am I a Jesus follower? Like, am I really a Jesus follower? And if so, then what are the implications of this for the way I live my life today? All right, so let's look at what Jesus has done. It's just beautiful the way Paul puts this. Uh, what has he done? There's a couple ways of putting it. I'll start with this. What he's done is this. He's destroyed that dividing wall of hostility, that barrier. He has torn it down. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. And there's two barriers I want us to think about this morning. First, there's an external barrier. And I want you to picture right now, literally an external wall, like a 50-foot wall, five feet thick, okay? Can't get over. On one side, there were Jews. On the other side, there were Gentiles. And they would never cross this barrier. And essentially, what that barrier, that external barrier was, it was the law. It was the Jewish law. It was... All the things that the law called the Jews to do, that they would 
you know, be circumcised, that they would eat certain ways, that they would observe certain days. And that kept Jews and Gentiles separate. Gentiles didn't do those things. Jews did those things. So there was this wall between them. And when Jesus came, he came to bring that wall down and that wall came crashing down. We'll we'll talk about how he did that in just a second. So there was an external barrier keeping them from fellowship with one another. But I think even more important than that, there was an internal barrier keeping them from each other. Look at verse 16. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And the inner barrier was a hostility of the heart. And this really gets to the essence of it. It wasn't just an external thing of different lifestyles and cultural norms, but there was a barrier in the heart. And in the Jewish heart, there was this, we have the law, you don't. We're God's people, you're not. We're in, you're out. There was this posture of superiority to anybody who was not a Jew. And in the Gentile heart, there was this posture to the, to the Jew that said, you guys are just kind of weird. You're kind of strange and you're not very nice to us. And so we kind of feel like we're better than you. And so there was this heart posture of hostility and mistrust and prejudice and anger towards one another. And Jesus did something to take that internal barrier and to bring it down, to put it to death, as it says in verse 16. So the question is, what did he do to break down the external and the internal barriers? Well, this is what he did. He died. He came to earth and he gave his life. He suffered an excruciating death to tear down those barriers, external and internal. And Paul is at pains to describe just how much Jesus did, the sacrifice he offered to do this. Verse 13 ends, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. It was through the shedding of his own blood. Verse 15, it talks about setting aside in his flesh the law, meaning his body, his flesh was broken to bring down these walls. Verse 16, it says he put this hostility to death through the cross by being executed on a first century tool of execution. All that to say this happened at great cost to himself. He died, he sacrificed himself, and his death changes everything. It brings down these walls. Now here's how this works. I want to get kind of into the details of this, and then we'll step out and consider our lives today. So here's how this works. Look at verse 15. Okay, He's destroyed the barrier by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So let me talk through this. Remember that external wall we talked about? That was the law. That was God's way of saying, here's how you live. Here's how you are made right with God. And you're either in or out. And what Jesus does at his death is say this, I am making a new way of being right with God. And it actually has nothing to do with the law. You can now be made right with God apart from observing the law because I have opened up a new way. And how he does this is through his death on the cross. So first he lives a perfect life. He perfectly fulfills all the requirements of the law. And then at the cross, he offers the perfect death, the perfect sacrifice 
for sin that God's justice requires, that God's holiness requires. And so now we can have a righteousness apart from the law, whether Jew or Gentile or anything else. We can have a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus and his death alone. And when that happens, the law comes crashing down, meaning it becomes an irrelevant way to try to make ourselves right with God. It is obsolete. And so all these externals that divided Jews and Gentiles, all these different ways that they lived, lived, those come crashing down. Those are no longer relevant as ways of being made right with God. So Paul will say throughout the New Testament, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter anymore. You can be circumcised or not, it doesn't matter. You can eat these kinds of foods or you can eat these kinds of food. It doesn't matter. You can observe these kinds of days or these. It no longer matters. Today we would add how you dress, how you talk, uh, what your skin color is, what your voting record is, what your age is. Any of these externals no longer matter before God in ways that divide people. Jesus has rendered those obsolete because he's given us a new way of being made right with God that has nothing to do with laws and regulations. So the external barrier comes down. And then, and here's the heart of the matter. Here's what I want you to hear most. With that come, with, with the law coming down, that internal barrier of hostility also comes crashing down in the human heart. Because here it is. In the end, what lies, what is the source of hostility, of prejudice, of division between peoples? Well, in the end, what's at the source of it is pride. It is the pride of the human heart. It is a proud heart that is looking for ways to justify itself before God, looking for ways uh, to prove itself, looking for ways to look at ourselves and say, there's got to be something about me, something in me that makes me acceptable to God, something I do, something that I am, whether it's my ability to perform for God, whether it's my connection to some group, whether it's some, some history or heritage that I have, there's something in me that, that is acceptable to God. And when we have that kind of proud, prideful heart, it results in then looking out and beginning to compare ourselves with other people and finding ways to find ourselves superior to other people, right? Essentially finding ways to, to, to make ourselves feel like we're, we're better than other people, especially the people that look very different than us and live very differently from us. And so there's at the heart of the issue, this pride that then leads to a prejudice and then hostility towards other people. And the cross, what Jesus has done at the cross is to tear down the root of human pride. I mean, pride finds its end at the foot of the cross. Verse 16, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. This is the gospel. Paul says, both of you, Jew, Gentile, and any other category of person, you have been reconciled to God through the cross and through the cross alone. Meaning, it took the violent death of the Son of God for you to be made right with God. Meaning, apart from the cross, you've got nothing. None of your works, none of your attempts, none of your accomplishments, none of that amounts to a hill of beans 
before God. It, it all falls so short. It is the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone that makes you acceptable to God, that makes you right with God, that makes you righteous in his sight. And so at the foot of the cross, human pride comes to its end and can be replaced simply by faith. This simple trust, God, you have done for me what I couldn't do for myself. That leaves A faith that leaves you humbled and grateful. And that faith, that humility has massive implications for how we relate with one another in our horizontal relationships. That means this, that together, as we stand side by side as Jew and Gentile, or as black and white, or as young and old, or as rich or poor, whatever category you want to say, we look at one another, and in Christ we realize, man, I had nothing before the cross. You had nothing before the cross. We, we were at a level playing field before the cross. And, and by Christ's death on the cross, we've both been made right with God by sheer grace. I, I'm no better and I'm no worse than you. We are together in how we are saved. Look at verse 18. For through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit, right? I come to the Father through Christ. You come to the Father through Christ. The same spirit that is working in me is the same spirit that is working in you. And the same God who has adopted me is the same God who has adopted you. So that must mean we're in the same family. We are brothers and sisters. There is no pride in that, just mutual gratitude and a sense of what we share in common, not a sense of what divides us and makes us different from one another. And that is, that is Jesus' ultimate purpose, is to bring this commonality, this community, this really this new humanity that finds itself in him. Look at the second half of verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. That's what Jesus is up to in the world, a new humanity in him. He's not looking for a group of people who are just, you know, slightly more polite versions of themselves with each other. He's looking for a new kind of people, a people who find their identity together and their unity together in him. Look at all the in Christ language in this passage. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus you have been brought near. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is where we find our peace. Again, verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. It's a new kind of people united in Jesus. And our unity in Christ then runs deeper than any other thing that might divide us, whether that is race or economics or gender distinctions or political parties or whatever, our unity in Christ runs deeper than any of that. This is what Jesus is doing on the cross. This is what he wants for us today. This new humanity united together in him. All right, that was a lot. I know, a lot of detail there. But let me just step back. And, and what I want you to do is just step back from all this and just consider Jesus. Consider his goal, which is to tear down these barriers between us, to bring peace between us. Consider his sacrifice, what 
it cost him to bring about our unity. And I also want you to consider his prayer and his heart for us. And I want to leave you with his prayer for us. There's this beautiful moment at the night before he dies, the night before he goes to the cross, where he prays for the disciples, and then he actually prays for us. He prays for future believers who would come to faith in him through the disciples and down through the ages. This is the only recorded prayer in the Bible that is specifically addressed for us. And here's what he prays as he thinks about us and what his heart for us is. Let me read to you John 17. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. When he thinks of us, he prays for unity, that we would be one, that we would live out the unity that he's made possible on the cross. And the purpose of this unity ultimately is, as he sees it, is this will be our great witness to the world, right? Our unity will be the thing that convinces the world that God sent Jesus as his one and only son. And so in a world that is so divided right now, Jesus has this prayer that his people would live a different way, that would be a testimony to the world that he really is who he said he was and that he really can do what he claims to be able to do. So as each one of us considers Jesus' heart, his passion, his prayer, I think we need to ask ourselves, am I a Jesus follower? Like, do I really follow this man? And if so, what are the implications for my life in terms of how I pursue unity in these times? And so I want to just give you some space to consider, Lord, how are you inviting me into this, this vision of unity? Personally, how am I being called to fulfill this vision that you have for your church? Let me give you a couple options. Maybe for you, it's just about the relationships that are already around your life right now. And, and you just feel like, I just need to pursue unity in the relationships that are in my life every single day. My family, my friends, the folks I see at church, my, you know, my, the people in my community. Um, the truth is we, we can be championing these larger societal calls for unity. But uh, if our day-to-day -day relationships are fractured and broken, then that's probably where we should start. And so maybe you just want to start with the relationships that are already in your life. Maybe uh, you're convicted by uh, the attitude in your heart towards certain Christians that just look and feel different than you. And uh, maybe you even foster in your heart a, uh, a pride that results in uh, some prejudice or a sense of being better uh, than certain Christians because of how they think about things or how they talk or whatever it might be. And maybe you just need to sit with that posture and say, Jesus wants to tear down that, that heart posture. And, and maybe you need to confess that posture before the Lord. Or maybe there's, there's people that you want to maybe more intentionally start pursuing. Maybe you tend to pursue people who are very much like you. And that's so natural. It's so much easier to hang with people that look like us, um, that have similar backgrounds as us, that are at a similar socioeconomic level. It's just practically simpler. But as you look at this call for unity across groups, maybe Jesus is stirring something in you that's, that tells you, 
I want to be pursuing different kinds of relationships with believers who look very different than me. Maybe that's what Jesus has for me. And maybe it's something else. But let's actually pause for a moment and take some time to prayerfully consider, Jesus, how are you inviting me into this image of unity?
Well, we hope you've been encouraged today, and as usual, we invite you to engage the discussion questions immediately following this. And to close our time together, uh, let me just uh, recite to you this benediction found in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.